1: Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats
2: Willander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Sandra Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah.
3: Hi, this is Carol Echosher from Currently in Lockdown, London, and you're lucky enough to be listening to The Tennis Podcast. (laughs)
4: Eccleshare is the mother of the magnificent Charlie Eccleshare, who is the man who is often a guest here on the tennis podcast or who has been over the last few years. We miss Charlie, don't we, Catherine?
3: Yes, I actually just minutes ago wandered uh, past the spot in the lobby of uh, the hotel I'm staying in, attached to the O2 Arena, uh, where we recorded with Charlie a podcast here last year with many beers um, and it was, happy, it was a happy. It was a happy memory, laden with pathos.
2: And yeah. that was why I picked Carol to be our intro today, because that was after a brilliant Dominic team performance that we did that podcast with Charlie.
3: It oh. was. Was that after the team Djokovic? It
2: match? was. Yes. So it felt appropriate for some echo oh, well, share
4: fantastic he's oh, not well, just a pretty face david no oh, that's well thought through matt i mean i can't believe that you've actually got stats <laughs> uh, according to the intros uh, of the mothers of the contributor of a year ago which is amazing uh but anyway thank you very much carol for your Hello, support carol. who Hello, is carol. uh who's a, another one of our wonderful backers who has helped the the tennis podcast continue to grow and and hopefully improve over the last 12 months, Um, and we will be running our Kickstarter again from December the 1st, so there'll be more shout-outs and intros that you can uh, get involved in if you'd like to intro a show as well. We've got new categories. We've got some new pet mascot categories, because Catherine Whitaker has not got enough of those this year, so we've got some more. (laughs) We've invented some more. We've got some more uh, predictions ones as well, and even suggestions of a tennis relived editorship. I mean, I want to do that though, so I might buy that. <laughs> um, and it's all going to be Pete Sampras related. So uh, that's for the future on December the 1st. We have got a lot to get our teeth into today here on the Tennis Podcast because, for a start, the matches have been both singles wise have both been amazing and really want to pick those apart. Lots to discuss. And a lot of tennis news as well, because uh, there's been Australian Open news breaking tonight that we're going to discuss. And also, we're going to have um, round two of Matt versus me regarding the volleys of Roger Federer with some extra input from people that Catherine Whitaker has been speaking to today. How's your day been, Catherine? Very good. Has <laughs> it? Yeah. At Mosswise? Atmos-wise, to well, I mean, me... At, I mean, there isn't I mean, any. What know question is in that? The, I know there's nobody in the stadium, but you you tell me this. right? right, I'm going to ask Matt instead. Uh, Matt, even though there were no people in the stadium, to me, that match between Dominic Team and Rafael Nadal today, which was 7-6, seven, 7-6, six, seven, six, and just incredible tennis, it was one of those that reminded you that even though we, uh, I personally I miss the crowds, but actually... That one didn't need a crowd it was that good
2: it gave me women's semi-final u.s open vibes when the the tennis was just so good on that evening when you had that brady Osaka match and that azarenka serena match i agree with you I, I thought it would have been nice to have a crowd but it didn't feel like it needed a crowd i think maybe that's That's the, what is it they say, the learning that we can take from sort of not having crowds in tennis. I think really bad matches are really bad, whether there's a crowd or there's not a crowd. Really good matches are really good whatever. I think what crowds do is kind of elevate good or mediocre matches and kind of make us more engaged with them. But I think if there's a fantastic match like this one was today, you can get into it and you can feel the buzz and you can feel the electricity in a way just between the two players and from the quality of the tennis and i was fully engaged with all two hours and 20 minutes of it or however long Mm. it was it was it was absolutely fantastic it was the most invigorated i've been by tennis in several weeks i would say
4: Mm. yeah well 7-6-7-6 could have gone either way there were Great opportunities for, for both players to, to wrestle the match from one another. Catherine, you are effectively our Mary Carrillo tonight because mm-hmm. on that women's semi-final night that Matt describes, Mary was in the stadium. She was one of the select few that had that seat overlooking the actual court and not a TV screen. You were the, doing that today. What did it feel like, and what was the sort of chat like amongst you, you and your peers, while that match was going on?
3: Oh, w- probably the the match of match of the year, quality quality wise. Um, I mean, they they were both pretty much ten out of ten for a full two hours and twenty five minutes in terms of quality. That is so incredibly rare. Um. Yeah, I, I was exhilarated by it. I loved the match. I was I was glued to it in a way I haven't been by any match so far. My experience of watching it in the stadium is different to what you two are describing, to what you described there, Matt. I was more aware uh of the lack of crowds and more sad about it than uh I have been during any other match. Actually, um, and I'm, I'm very pleased to hear your experience wasn't that because I do I it just emphasises me how different it is on the telly, um, and I'm you know of a am presenting the telly so I'm glad that <laughs> that people watching on the telly are having a decent viewing experience and look it did not take away from my enjoyment of the tennis but after every point I was imagining sort of I could sort of hear the 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 faint ghostly echo of the roar that there should have been. Um and I guess it's I, I was trying to debate with myself about why it is and you know I'm 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 gazing over this stadium and perhaps it's because probably seventy percent of my field of vision is occupied by empty seats. And you're not seeing that on the telly most of the time. Occasionally there's a wide shot. Um, but mostly you're seeing the, the tennis and, and the players and yeah, I'm looking at that too. But I I can't crop out <laughs> those empty seats. Um, and I think possibly it's down to something as, as simple as that. So I was sad, as saddened by it as I was completely exhilarated by it. Um, and I'm OK with that. I'm OK with that. I think it should feel sad. Yeah that there wasn't a crowd to enjoy that. It deserved a crowd. Um, there deserved to be 17,000 people in the world that get to say for the rest of their lives that they they saw that match live because I I really do think it is one of those ones that will the memory will last. People remember, yeah, do you remember that that Nadal team match at the O2 that year? Goodness me.
4: Mm. Um, what, what, what I loved about it was it, I think if you'd had, had a crowd... People wouldn't have necessarily been just pulling for one or the other. They would have been just glorying in the fact that they got to see it. They'd have been high fiving mm-hmm. each other. They'd have been turning around to each other and just saying, "Did you? I mean, did you see that?" And, and and then the next one. And the players themselves were getting off on it. I felt, you know, statement tennis. I am playing my best and have a have a bit of this forehand bent around you at the net for a clean winner and then team did exactly the same back to him in the next point I mean that it was just point and counterpoints being made all the way through it and uh yeah I mean I think that they were pretty much playing as well as they can throughout the match and where did it turn Matt because that first set in the tie break Nadal looked like he was going to win it
2: Yeah, I think he was 5-2 up in the first set tie-break. I felt good about team going into that tie-break because he's been incredible in them all all season. I remember that quarter he played against Nadal at the Australian Open. It was three tie-breaks that he won. He then won two more against Ferev in the Australian Open semifinals. He won all the crucial tie-breaks he played in the US Open. He has unlocked something in tiebreaks i think this year I, mean, I think he spoke about it during the us open how he's sort of taken inspiration from djokovic in a way and decided to lock in in tiebreaks and not make errors and whatever it is that he's doing it's working he is he's a giant in those biggest moments and this was a this was a match which was nip and tuck the whole way it was it was so close and it was decided in in those tiebreaks where team was the better player and I think, you know, Nadal has summed it up pretty well in his press conference by saying, I actually feel more like I'm going to have a good result in this tournament, even though I lost that match because I played so well. He He's not thinking just because he lost it, it's sort of ended his chances in this tournament. Quite the opposite. He was so encouraged by the level he played. And he just knows that team got him in those two tie breaks by raising his game. I mean, some of the forehand winners Dominic team hit in that first set tie break, especially when he was down, were outstanding. I mean, I'm not sure there's anyone else who's got that weight of shot and can push Nadal around like team can at the moment. It's it kind of forces you to change your entire belief system about tennis. You know, for so long it's been if a member of the big three plays well, they will win and we 're now in a stage where Nadal is playing well against Dominic team and he 's not winning and that is that is a credit to the way team has improved and matured into this player who can go toe to toe with them he's uh, he 's got a winning record against the big three in the last two years a substantial winning record, and against those players it 's tiny moments, small margins and team team is winning them he 's gutsy he's brave and I'm just full of admiration for for his tennis. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a joy.
4: Mm, I have to say when you were describing that that really did bring that Djokovic team match back to me last year. That feeling that Djokovic has played well mm. and has still lost, you know, and it's it is you're right. That's that's very well put that it shakes your your foundations a little. It's but it's exciting as well.
3: It was a it was a performance every bit as breathtaking from, from team today as it, as it was against Djokovic last year and maybe this is perception rather than reality because it kind of fits with our narrative about team but I felt less on edge about his performance less like he was absolutely redlining it and it could it could crumble at any at any moment I felt like there was just half a percent extra margin to it yeah somehow he was just just he was playing that way and yet somehow in a comfort zone
4: yeah Um, the floor isn't it the floor has risen in mm -hmm. his game and I think that that part of that is just miles on the clock but also I think it is grand slam title status he he believes now his basic game if he plays well not out of this world but just really well that will be enough to
2: live with these guys and may well beat them and I think. He he enjoys playing Nadal, I think, more so than he does Novak Djokovic. I think Djokovic can constrict him a little bit in the way he can, everyone. With Nadal, he gets, he gets the kind of rallies, the shape of exchanges that he likes. And I think if you were to look at Dominic's team's career, so many of his best performances would have come against Nadal, I think. He's beaten him... Five seasons in a row, I wanna say, it's sort of incrementally just improved and got better against Nadal. And there are lots of individual parts of his game that create this package that when he comes up against Nadal, he's a really tough opponent now for Nadal. I think I talked about that where the shot on that forehand. His serve is is unattackable on that second serve. I mean, you saw what Nadal did to Rublev's serve in the first match. He couldn't do that to team the way team was hitting his backhand up the line, he, he said something fascinating about how he was really practicing that and it works on a hard court but he struggles to do it on clay against Nadal because of the top spin and it comes up higher so therefore he does feel like, I remember you said on Prime Catherine, is this a closer match a better matchup for Team on a hard court than it is on a clay court and I think it absolutely is because of that shot, he can't really hit that against Nadal on clay but on a hard court he can and it's kind of the Djokovic playbook, but team style with, with his one-handed backhand and his explosive power and his, his movement. It's, yeah, it's a package of things that when you put them all together, it feels like he can sustain all of them against Nadal. And uh, it's, it's just one of my favorite matches to watch because Nadal has to kind of figure it out. And now he's the one having to adapt a little bit.
3: He, he had a really wonderful awareness um, in that post-match interview he did on the court of what they had produced there in terms of a a tennis spectacle um i don't know whether it's the fact that he mentioned that austria has gone into lockdown today i think he i think he said Uh, so i don't know whether that was kind of weighing on his mind but he actually gave a a really um well, quite a quite powerful sort of little soliloquy really about how he he hoped that that spectacle that 2 hours and 25 minutes had provided a bit of escapism for for people and and you know he talked about the the privileged position that they're in getting to continue to do what they love. You know, Dominic team hasn't always been the most pandemic conscious guy. Well, certainly hasn't seemed to be necessarily over the past uh, past few months. He's not made any sort of massive faux pas, but I don't. He certainly hasn't seemed to be in the Nadal category of, you know, having this real awareness um, and attunement with what's going on in the world. So, I found it. I found it quite moving, really, what he said after that match and kind of putting putting in. He just seemed to understand what we'd all been through emotionally watching that match and what it what it meant to us i felt Mm. really kind of on a level with
4: him yeah yeah um i think we could do a whole podcast just about highlight moments from the match but let's just pick out two very quickly here both of them involving tweeners one was uh by team lobbed goes back and he plays one of the most controlled Paddled through the leg shots that I've seen there wasn't he, he didn't it wasn't just him flicking at the ball and blasting it as hard as he could at his opponent he just finessed it flat as a bat over the net onto the feet of, of Nadal at the net and Nadal just half volley dinked it over the net for a cushioned clean winner it was just beautiful racket control from both of them it was um, it was an
3: okay it was okay, okay yeah it
4: was okay yeah <laughs> we'll get on to that um and then the the next one was following a succession of saved match points by nadal he'd saved three match points from i think love 40 down and then he got lobbed it
3: was esque that
4: game yeah he, he he got lobbed ran back lifted a through the legs lob of his own nigh on perfection that team did very well to get to and smash back nadal still had to have the presence of mind to a forehand at the feet of of team in order to set up a, a lofted half volley for nadal to then rush forward and pass down the line with the backhand i mean the combinations just and they were they were fairly close together in the match and again you, you're shaking your head in in disbelief we've, seen, we've been watching tennis all these years and they can still make you think I, have I just seen that mm.
2: yeah I, f- I found that game where as you said Nadal was love 40 down serving to stay in the match three match points down it's probably the first time in the whole match someone had strung three bad points together in a row I think he missed a, a backhand missed volley a forehand and, and then a smash he completely framed it didn't he, he mistimed it um and then he just played I think three perfect serves that team didn't get back to get it back to Deuce and then perfect points to recover. It kind of It's kind of the tennis version of what Tiger Woods did at the weekend, getting a 10 on a par three, so an absolute mare. And then he went and birdied five of the next six holes. And Nadal in that moment just pulled himself together and then played some of the best tennis he can when he absolutely needed to. And that's a that's a quality that not many players have, I don't think. Um, that presence of mind, that ability to put points behind him. Um, he's, he's, he's extraordinary at that. And then it's kind, of a, it's kind of a testament as well then to team that he didn't keep thinking about those match points and he managed to put them behind him and play as well as he did for the rest of the match. It was, it was a key moment and both of them responded to it perfectly.
4: Hmm. Yeah, uh, Simon Briggs described it in his piece as the burly team even managing to out-muscle tennis's Misty Universe, which uh, I think uh, sums it up pretty well. That's That shows what team has managed to achieve there. And I think it all, quite early on in that first set, I, I just f- saw a look in the eye in, in the Nadal where I thought, he really rates Dominic Team. He, he everything about Team he respects the the physicality, the the competitiveness, the desire, and the shot making. There's not there are not many that I think Nadal probably looks down the other end and thinks fair play, fair play, mate. I don't, I can't really get to you, and you, you you're a match for me. Um, the, the other the other little. Um, note I wanted to mention was as well, watching Nicholas Massou in in the crowd, I say crowd, uh, in the seats. Um, I don't think there's a coach. He wasn't in the crowd. He was the crowd. He was the crowd. I, I don't think there's a coach that I've seen that looks like he's enjoying watching his own player more than Nicholas <laughs> Massou. He, he looks like he's just getting off on the whole thing. He's just loving it. He's buzzing throughout mm. the whole thing. The team does um, have
2: that effect, I think. Yeah. He's mm. so explosive to watch. You can't be neutral, I don't think, watching no. team He he will move you in some way or, or other when you're watching him. Mm. Yeah, um, I do
3: feel like if you don't w- like watching Dominic Team's tennis, then you, you probably don't like tennis.
2: Yeah. Uh, I've, uh, I feel like David's uh, uh, been told off for saying that in the past. I've
4: been told off for saying that about <laughs> Shapovalov, haven't I? <laughs> 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 I get told off a lot, um, but I couldn't agree more with you. Really, I mean, you, you you must. What is going on? If you if that doesn't make you think, wow, there's something wrong. Really. Um, so anyway, that puts Dominic Team through. He's automatically qualified for the semi-finals now. Rafael Nadal is going to be in a battle on Thursday night. We we now know with Stefanos Tsitsipas, who has just about beaten andre rublev tonight and i did something that i very rarely do today and that's i had a nap um and upon announcing to matt and Catherine that i was going to go and have a nap one minute later Catherine wrote it's too late to have a nap <laughs> um and I'd, i didn't know this rule i mean I'd, I'd already gone for my nap at this point so it's two hours later by the time i read that um and it was lovely by the way uh but whilst napping i mean first of all Catherine, why was it too late to have a nap i mean i feel well, great. well
3: my rule is sort of anything after about 6 30 and you're sort of just going to bed really early
4: <laughs> so how's that going to affect me tonight because it's half past midnight yeah, you're and not i feel fantastic sleep. right you're,
3: now yeah your eyes are saying you know i've been up for eight days but i'm fine because i've had a load of red bull <laughs> um yeah you're not going to sleep so I right. hope it was a really good nap.
4: Yeah, it was great. Great. But you can edit,
3: David. <laughs> <laughs>
4: There's an idea. No, no, yeah, but you've had a nap as well, so that's true. Don't try and get out of that. <laughs> Showing <laughs> off both of you. <laughs> so anyway, Damn. what while napping, uh I came I came out of nap and the doubles had finished and Andre Rublev was set down after 19 minutes. What happened in those 19 minutes?
3: Oh, he was really bad.
4: Was he? It wasn't Sitsipas just being amazing. I no. mean, sits or,
3: n- no, Sitsipas was good. He was as good as he needed to be. He didn't need to be very good. Am I being harsh, Matt?
2: No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think you're being spot on. That was that was my reading of it. Uh, I, I really feared for that match in those first mm. 19 minutes. Rublev looked out of his depth, and he looked, I thought, exhausted. I mean, he said. He's given some quotes this week saying that in Paris he was mentally exhausted and physically exhausted, and now he's really fresh. I don't really understand how that happened in the space of a week. I could understand how you were feeling better, but to go from exhausted to fresh, it feels like there wasn't enough time for that to happen.
3: It's what the uh, intercontinental
2: O2 <laughs> does to you. So It's not. <laughs> so I was then... You know, it's kind of down about about Rublev as I was in that first set. I was so impressed by the way he managed to get back in the match. And it, it seemed that, I'm sure there were more complicated reasons than this to why he got back in it, but it, it seemed that he found his serve. I mean, in the first set, he couldn't get his serve in at all. And Tsitsipas, I've already talked about, his about Rublev's second serve not being particularly good. Sitsipas was just dominating it. But then Rublev started getting that serve in, and that is plan A. That's what we talk about with Rublev. Get the serve in, dominate with the forehand. And it's a good plan A. And it started working, and it got him back in the match. And then, then I started fearing for Sitsipas. And I was getting, what was it, that Federer quote he gave you in the lift? Why do I lose all the close matches? I started thinking that about Sitsipas, because recently he's lost so many Close matches, obviously, starting with Chorich. He lost, then lost to Sinner in Rome, which was close. Roland Garros was close to Djokovic. Um, bear the other week was close. He's he's had a really poor record in these deciding Ruben sets in that final. Rublev in the Hamburg final, yeah, exactly. Lost so, lost his last three tie breaks, exactly. So, I started to kind of panic for him and think it's <laughs> just all round panic, yeah. It was just a complete reverse from the first set, and um. I think it's really big for him. Then he managed to find a way through it. I think it's, he, he's building his confidence back up gradually.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
4: Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners eighteen free meals plus free dessert for life, and of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com/tennis. That's homechef.com/tennis for eighteen free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right.
2: And this is this is a block in that confidence. I think it would have been, you know, a couple of steps back if he loses another tight one. He. Because he didn't used to lose tight matches. This is a relatively new thing. And I think it's important that he gets back on the right track as, as quickly as he possibly can. And he was obviously helped by Rublev double faulting on the match point in the final set tie break. But then Tsitsipas played a nice point himself and managed to kind of wrestle it. He, he praised his own bravery in that, in that final set. Um, so, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's an important one for Tsitsipas
4: that double fault though Catherine Andre Rublev had match point and double faulted i mean i don't mean i don't want to be mean but that's that's not not on is it you, if you're his coach you are fuming at him and i'm thinking rublev right now he is just having nightmares as we speak he's tossing and turning in his bed and he's dreaming about that moment that the ball hit the net on that second serve
3: it was a bit of a cliche rookie error, wasn't it? It's just the sort of error that experienced players kind of don't make and I I spent that first set sort of condemning him as a junior playing in the senior league. You know, he really looked like not a fully formed top tennis player. Um what 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 were you in uh What were you and Math comparing him to on the uh, Kiri Optimist's (laughs) chat, which definitely needs a (laughs) rebrand?
2: Math came up with the brilliant line that he looked like a T20 player drafted into the test team.
3: And Matt said, oh God, he's Jason Roy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, who is a brilliant white ball cricketer. And then as soon as he has to play with a red ball, he, he can't score any runs at all and kind of felt like Rublev has these occasional flashes of brilliance and then just generally looks out of his depth against these better players. So it, it is a credit to him that he turned it around. It was He turned it around very subtly. It was, it was a mm-hmm. surprise when he won the second set. I almost felt like the person in charge of the fake crowd noise was surprised because I'm not sure there was any <laughs> when he won the second set. It, it just sort of suddenly happened. And Just then a couple we're of uh,
4: notes of clarification. Uh, Math is Catherine's brother. He's a massive Kyrie optimist. and he—they're talking about T20 and Test cricket here, aren't they? Uh, and and eventually, the name David Warner came up from Math as, yes. as an alternative. Now, what what does that mean? I don't know really who David Warner is.
2: He's he's an Australian who was a white ball cricketer so t20 fifty overs who got who went into the test team and has been brilliant in test cricket <laughs> um, so rublev did a full transformation in the course of a match right
3: i do just maybe i'm looking too much into the kind of sits pass sort of mental woes here but it it's kind of the 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 domino effect of being somebody that is struggling mentally with blowing leads. Rublev will have been aware of that, you know. Against, I think if you lose an opening set against Djokovic six one, and you're Andre Rublev, you're probably not thinking oh, I've still got a chance here. But I think just at the moment possibly this effect is lessening with every match like today that to pass wins just at the moment Pass, you know races into a lead and still I think the opponent's thinking I could still get him on the ropes here you know there's there's a there's a weakness to be to be poured yeah. at I, um, I also so think I it's think quite it, a big it, moment f- em- for Rublev just how big a deal it was for him to win Come, today to pass
4: coming back for Rublev making it a fight, I mean, I, I think I think that's really important because he was on the verge of, he'd lost three straight sets in this tournament on his debut and was looking completely out of his depth, and yet he made that interesting competitive and arguably should have ended up winning it. So, you know, if you're a glasses-half-full type, um, you've, you've got to
2: take some positivity mm. from that, I would have thought. And I think that point Catherine made about him knowing Sitsipas, is, is is Rublev's whole point of being at this tournament, he says, to get more experience. I hadn't realised how relatively few times he's played all the top players because so much of his success has been at the 250s and the 500s. He just hasn't really run into them that much. He's only played Federer once in his career. He's played Nadal twice now, and he's never played Djokovic. And for someone to be at the year-end finals with with that Hmm. record those few those few matches against the players who are always in the latter stages of tournaments just shows that he he does need experience and I think he's got experience against Sitsapas. he feels more comfortable in that matchup he had a terrible start Mm. but he kind of knew there was a route back in and perhaps when he when he can start playing these top players more he'll be I mean it could go the other way he could build up a load of baggage and sort of there could be the opposite effect but i think what he's hoping for is that the more he plays them the more comfortable he'll feel playing them and just he'll feel like he belongs i think more and this i suppose what you're saying david is this comeback or not quite comeback will kind of contribute to that feeling of belonging i think as well in this tournament
4: yeah, I think so. Um he now faces a dead rubber basically against a dominant team on Thursday afternoon and it's the Sitsipas Nadal blockbuster in the evening session on Thursday. Um doubles today. Wesley Kulhoff and Nikola Mektic won against Ranchi Ram and Joe Salisbury, very close first set seven six, then a very one sided second, six love. Um An
3: unexpected Yulia Gerges in Wesley Koolhoff packing area
4: oh really really oh,
3: interesting. yes interesting oh. julia Goges and wesley coolhoff seem to be a thing oh
4: she's recently retired isn't she um at yes. the end of this year and uh, so yeah in attendance i didn't know that um that might have been during one of my naps um <laughs> kevin Kravets. i'm not really experienced at napping i keep doing it at the wrong times kevin Kraviats and uh Andreas Mies won against uh, Lucas Kubot and Marcella Mello. 6-2, 7-6 is the other one. So Kravitz Uh, and
3: Mies, it's a straight shootout with Salisbury and Ram. Oh, is it? That's good. For the uh, second qualification spot in that
4: group, Kubot and Mello are out. I mean, it's always a bit of a blow when you've got to put up with these dead rubbers. But at the same time, I can't stand these matches where you're trying to do maths. Uh, no. in your head about who goes mm. through and whatever but i mean that you know we're going to have a, at least two out of the four matches on thursday will be fantastic then um as sort of eliminators won't they so we'll we'll look forward to those um you had today Catherine, in the prime video studio you had tim henman uh with you and there was a really interesting Discussion about Andy Murray. I thought I was really fascinated to hear the views being put forward, and one of them in particular that I found really interesting. That when talking about his the potential that remains in Murray's career, how hard he's working, and Murray himself. There were clips of him talking about how he still thinks he can get even stronger at this stage of his career, and and Henman was just wondering whether that is really what you want as a tennis player, to be more muscular potentially or carrying too much weight in this era. I found, I found all that very interesting. He's um, he, he ended up concluding, Henman, that he thinks Murray could if he gets fit. I think you asked him, if he doesn't have any more injury setbacks, what is the, the potential for the remainder of Murray's career? And I think Henman said that he could win tournament's on tour but slams would likely be beyond him
3: yes i think he sort of pointed to antwerp last year as a sort of a a what 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 we have kind of the the empirical evidence of being a peak post resurfacing andy murray um And, you know, he required a pretty high level to to win that Antwerp title. It was a really high-quality final against Stan Wawrinka. He thought the the rigours of five-set tennis and the recovery uh, required um, in five-set tennis tournaments was potentially a bridge too far. Uh, I asked Daniela the same question, and she put it in terms of... um, ranking rather than tournaments and she thought top 10 was achievable. Wow. Daniela is Daniela is a kind of a big believer in mind over matter and she I know she is in awe of the mind of Andy Murray and the will of Andy Murray and she kind of thinks I think she's wary of discounting him from doing anything. Um, but she certainly is an optimist where he's where he's concerned.
2: Mm. And just to say, Daniela was the person who I found to be most optimistic about Victoria Azarenka's chances of any kind of comeback. I had completely written her off, really, as a as a relevant force in the game. And I know Hantakova said earlier this year that she thought Azarenka could could come back and compete again and uh, she certainly has been has been doing that in the last few months so let's hope that uh, Hantakova's crystal ball is 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 working (laughs) with Murray in the same way it is with Azarenka.
4: Hmm. You had more chats with uh, Tim Henman today Catherine uh, and put to him the the words that Matt and I had on last night's p- podcast uh, about the uh, the relative volleying skills of Roger Federer and Tim Henman's assertion on air that they were okay. Uh, so what happened?
3: On air or off air?
4: Well, you tell me. What happened today?
3: Well, he strolled into the, uh, the green room while I was in the, the hair and makeup chair and Greg was in there and Daniela was in there. was a big room we're all socially distanced um and I said oh hello Tim uh you 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 caused an argument on the podcast last night and he said oh yeah about what um and I said about your assertion that Federer's volleys are okay I said settle an argument were you joking were you being playful with your choice of words and he said no Absolutely not. He wasn't being playfully stood by it. He said in 1998, he said that most of the top 30 players in the world would have had better volleys than Roger Federer. I then put to him Matt's point about serving and volleying his way to a Wimbledon title in 2003 and he he did say "Mm, that's a good point and he he chewed on it a bit and he he he, it did seem to sort of impact his thinking a little bit but then he yeah he's he's stuck to his guns he thinks Federer's volleys
4: are are okay so Matt (laughs) pretty much what I thought then (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> I mean, I must say, I thought when, when he was sort of listing all these players that he thought were great volleyers, he was having to debate whether they were better volleyers than Federer, quite a lot of them. And I thought in a way that kind of proved that Federer's volleys are better than than OK. If he was having to have a debate in his mind about whether he's Federer's a better volleyer than a cry check, for example, I think was one of the players. I think that all points to to my point.
3: He said "He said Sampras was a good volleyer and Rafter was a great volleyer.
2: Mm. I, I mean, we're into I so if Sampras now, is we? only
3: good, maybe OK is, is more than OK. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe, relative, maybe OK doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. I mean, just when you think it's the most universal word in any <laughs> language. Maybe we're all interpreting it differently. I don't know. I mean, Daniela, when I raised the debate again <laughs> on air daniela said blimey if you think federer's volleys are only okay then i'm never volleying again ever <laughs> um yeah i i don't know greg was slightly more defensive of uh of federer's volleying skills but yeah stuck to his guns
4: well, well done on
2: taking it up, Catherine. It's very interesting. Mm, it's great work. We'll have to ask Federer. How would you describe your volleys? I might just <laughs> ask him that in a press conference. I think, one I think day. it'd be
4: a re- really interesting discussion. Rate your volleys
3: I, I, out of ten.
4: Well, we should also ask Pat Rafter and Stefan Edberg what they think of Roger Federer's volleys. I'd be very interested to know. We're I think
3: gonna, I said if Edberg's a ten out of ten, if we're taking him as the gold standard, what's Federer? And I think he said a six.
4: Or a six and a half or something.
2: Six, I thought he said s- I thought he said Federer's volleys compared to Federer were a six and a half. They were a oh, compared were a to six- other
3: areas of his
2: oh, game. That's his game. interesting. I, yeah. I thought he had Federer down at about five compared to Compared to Edberg, Ed And then and then you asked him about Zverev. You know, if Federer's yes. a five, where's Zverev? And he said what, a three or a two?
4: <laughs> mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, relatively speaking, I think that that, that does sound about
2: right.
3: Oh, well, Federer's a five. I mean, most people are a two.
2: Mm.
3: No shame in being a two if Federer's no. a five.
2: No, I'll it's take not a the one. two. I have a problem with. <laughs>
4: I'll, I'll get you. To, I'll get you watching some Stefan Edberg when we do tennis relived next year, and uh...
3: nobody is doubting the prowess of Stefan Edberg. No. Here, David. I'm... None of this diminishes that.
4: No, I'm just just so that you can enjoy it because it's just it <laughs> is just. Amazing experience to watch, watch him do what he did because he. There's so much he didn't have in his game, but serving a volleying was just. Oh, I loved it. You and Tim need to get a room. Talk about (laughs) Stefan Edberg all night. (laughs) Quite happy to. Um, Right. By the way, I remember seeing (laughs) Stefan Edberg carve up Henman. I stayed up all night to watch the U.S. Open. I think in about 1996, and uh, and and I was convinced that Henman could take him. And I was wrong. Um, so anyway. <laughs>
3: that was in the early Henman days.
4: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was right, right at the beginning. Yeah. He got to the, about the fourth round, something like that. He did well mm. at the US Open. But uh, Edberg was just the master at that that particular game. So, well, good detective work, Catherine. That was fantastic. Very interesting. Um, we've had some news that to, to finish uh, the show on. We've had some news tonight from Australia that a lot of the plans that they'd had in place – that we understood them to be from the interviews that Craig Tiley, the tournament director, had done. All the idea was that players would come in mid-December, do their two weeks of quarantine, play all of the pre-Australian Open tournaments in Melbourne uh, to reduce travel and potential spreading of the virus. Um, and that has, we've been told tonight in reporting by Tennis Channel initially, that uh, is not going to be viable, that players are not going to be allowed to come into the country as things stand in December at all. Um, And the first day that they will be allowed to set foot in the country is the 1st of January, which, if they are required to do two weeks quarantine at that point, would take them up to about three or four days before the Australian Open is due to begin, which is hardly ideal, uh, at the very least. And potentially, you know, threatens the entire Australian tennis summer. Uh, certainly those preview or those run-up tournaments that uh, that they would hope to to run, whether the ATP Cup or some of the other events that they might bring over from Brisbane and Adelaide and Sydney. Um, we don't know officially where Tennis Australia stand on this at the moment. We, we've only heard this news In the last few hours and it does follow comments from the premier of uh of victoria saying that it's absolutely not a done deal that players can come in in december you know because of the logistical issues of of bringing all these people in Uh, and they've spent such a long time in lockdown getting rid of the virus or dampening it down to the fact that they've had apparently zero cases over the last couple of weeks new cases um so we don't really know where we stand I think the, what I kind of expect they may end up doing if this continues and that players are not allowed to come in until the end of December or the, the first week in January is is to try to coincide the two weeks of quarantine with those tournaments and be able to get permission for players to practice and play competitively, I would imagine in some sort of bubble, whilst effectively quarantining. And therefore that would make it doable for them not only to run additional tournaments but also to play the australian open but Catherine, this is um just generally this is a pretty alarming state of affairs isn't it given that it's it's not that far away now
3: no i mean we're talking about players players would have been booked and planning to travel in less than a month's time to australia significantly less than a month's time in in some some players cases and it's, it's particularly irksome I think because because the tennis world or certainly i I thought okay I mean the the barriers to entry to Australia and and the price of entry is incredibly high, but once there, once the tennis world has got there and and passed through those barriers, it's a it's a kind of safe haven for tennis to exist for a while and and flourish for a while. Um, so for that to be thrown into some uncertainty um, is is quite discombobulating, really. Um, and I c- I can only imagine how the the players and the the tours feel about it. I I completely respect the position of uh, of the Australian government. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> we are in a glass house in terms of you know criticizing. The likes of Australia's uh, approach to r- risk-averse approach to uh, to COVID nineteen, absolutely. Um, but yeah, the the timing of it is is very disconcerting. Absolutely.
4: Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's something I, I, I it keeps coming back to me when we were having the events um, after the U.S. Open, Rome, and and, Ron and Garros, and a couple of times, Matt just mentioned. I'm watching this and I'm still wondering whether it really is right, you know, to see all this international travel when this is going on. It just it, it's hard to put the two together as much as we love the sport and want it to be able to be viable at the moment. Um, just as a final point uh, on tonight's tennis podcast, we've we've had a tweet come through tonight from Simon Briggs, our esteemed Telegraph tennis correspondent, who's written the following... Just in case there wasn't enough tennis news tonight, I'm hearing that Novak Djokovic and Vasek Pospisil, who resigned from the ATP Player Council in August, under duress from fellow members, in order to launch the PTPA, are now applying to rejoin the Player Council. It doesn't sound like they made a lot of progress with recruitment after the tennis court picture at the US Open. Votes must be in by the end of December, and the new council starts on January the 1st. Now, currently on the council is Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, uh, Andy Murray, br- at least temporarily, is 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 on it. Uh, John Millman, Felix Ogier, seem I seem to remember as well, where it were recent additions. But blimey, that's a bit of a turn up if that's uh, the case, isn't it?
3: Yeah, this feels ripe for a uh, how it started, how it's going <laughs> uh, <laughs> meme, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> <laughs> I know what the how it started picture w- would be. Um, answers on a postcard for the how it's going. Uh, yeah, I mean it's a it's a gutsy move to if if this is accurate, and I very much trust Simon Briggs. It's a gutsy move to put yourself forward again for the player council. That's that's
4: baller. Mm. I mean, I, spe- I dare say there's a fair bit of support, at least, from those players that were on the court with him believing in Djokovic and Pospisil as player leaders but yeah if they are planning to do that how they package that back to those players and explain to them why they're doing that is going to be very very interesting um so we'll we'll await more information uh when it is available but Catherine gets to bed Matt you may need to have a discussion about who's editing this thing uh have we got any shout outs
2: we do yes uh or Tamara. oh Tamara. Hello, Tamara. So Hello. Just—is
3: she like Prince?
4: <laughs> On
2: my no list. Names. Yes.
3: Okay. Hello, Tamara. It's could good to be, be like
2: Prince. It could be Tamara
4: Glenny.
3: I was thinking Tamara Glenny, but what if it's not Tamara Glenny?
4: Who once got, I think, her daughter or a granddaughter to do mm. A, a, mm. the most wonderful intro for us? Great. Yeah. Hello
3: to all Tamaras. Yes. yes. Let's, let's
4: that that let's support the tennis cover podcast. The,
3: base. <laughs>
4: the rest of
2: you can. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Matt, what else we got?
3: Move on, Matt. Next. <laughs>
2: uh, next is Rodolph Brum. Rudolph Great name. Awesome.
4: Thanks so much for your support.
2: Not good, Rudolph. good time of year
3: to be called Rudolph. Not Rudolph. Okay. No,
2: maybe I said Rodolph. Rodolph. Oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> Rodolph. We're, we're not too great. good at the
4: names. You know, we, we're trying though. We're trying. <laughs> and to Brangle Hunning.
3: Oh now, wow, that
4: is a name. Oh, that's top five names. Brangle. Awesome.
3: A little bit like Madison Brangle.
4: But, but yeah, not. a little bit. Yeah, it was a first name, though, isn't a it? That's
3: bit. A... This section of the show is just Catherine Reviews Your Name. <laughs> Which. Would you like to
2: pay Read a jingle.
3: Would you like to pay to next year have the privilege of Catherine reviewing your name on the
2: podcast And
4: from December the 1st you'll get your chance oh, <laughs> and if you'd you like Lucky to, lucky listeners If you would like to sign up for a reminder of, uh, of the <laughs> fact that you can pay to have us uh, dissect your name and also support the Tennis Podcast uh, to be produced for another year uh, we have a link in our show notes on your phone right now just uh, scroll down stick your email in and we'll send you one email to remind you on december the first you can be at the front of the queue for any of the uh the reward categories that you may be interested in thanks ever so much for listening to us uh tonight hope you've enjoyed it um it's been a lot of fun talking tennis and a couple of great matches bit of uh news and um yeah we'll be back to do it all again tomorrow